Now to hear from his word, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Ephesians 6, 17 through 20. Paul picks up in the middle of his explanation of the armor of God. And he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In the deserts of Tunisia, during World War II, General George Patton came upon a young soldier frantically trying to fix the lines on a telegraph pole in the midst of a furious firefight where German planes were strafing the road. And Patton stopped and he yelled up at the soldier and he says, What in the world are you doing up there at a time like this? And the young man answered, Fixing the wire, sir. Patton then asked, Isn't that a little unhealthy right about now? He answered, Yes, sir, but the wire has to be fixed. The general asked, Don't those planes strafing the road scare you? And he responded, No, sir, but you do. The young soldier on that telegraph pole understood two things. He had a fear of his general, and that compelled him to risk his life. But he also understood the importance of wartime communication. And this is the central point also of this morning's message. The importance of wartime communication. In Ephesians chapter 6, we've been studying the reality of spiritual warfare and how we can particularly stand firm against the wiles of Satan, the deception of Satan. And two weeks ago, we looked at the armor of God. And today, we're going to conclude that section by looking at the importance of prayer and the word. And these two aspects of spiritual warfare deal with communication. Prayer is our communication to God. And of course, the word is his communication of his will to us. So you could think of prayer and the Word, the Bible, as a sort of wartime walkie-talkie. How we talk to our commander and how he communicates to us. And just as communication between command and troops is important in the physical realm of life and winning battles in the physical world, it's also true in the spiritual world as well. The most vital aspect of our spiritual battle is to maintain communication with God. Typically, although not always, this is the main reason for spiritual breakdown in individuals, in families, and in churches. And I believe it's the greatest challenge for Christians in our era. That is to get regular time in the Word and in prayer. And the reality is it's just hard for us to slow down and get the time. We're a very busy culture. We find a lot of value in getting things done and what we can accomplish. And time in prayer takes time. And often 
you don't see any immediate results. Same thing with reading the Bible. And it takes effort. But despite that, it's vital for us. And that really, again, is the point of this message. And I've broken this morning's outline into seven points that are there for you. Understand your need for the Word. Pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit. Be alert to pray. Persevere in prayer. Pray for fellow Christians and pray for effectiveness in your ministry. So the first point, understand your need for the Word. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word for sword uh, in the Greek is makarion. Uh, It's probably referring to a gladius, which is the Roman soldier's sword. It was also a common term for a large knife, and it had many purposes for carting and sacrifice. But most likely, Paul is referring to the sword of a Roman soldier. And I actually just happen to have a gladius that I'm actually going to pass around, and you guys can take turns hacking each other if you like. Uh, but just feel it. it, it it's it's a kind of an authentic way. It'll give you a sense of um, what that sword would have been like. Uh, the... The word is actually referred to uh, as a sword a number of times in Scripture. It uh, speaks of the Messiah's words in Isaiah 49.2 as being like a sword. In Revelation 19.15, Jesus Christ will destroy his enemies by the word uh, of his mouth, the sword of his mouth, it says. And Hebrews 4.12, maybe of what might have come to a lot of your minds says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. And the point of the word in Ephesians 6 being described as a sword is seen in the fact that spiritual warfare is really a battle for the truth. We see in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying and he says, Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. That is how we determine what is real. And we consider that Satan's attacks against us primarily uh, work through lies, and lies are destroyed by the truth, we see the importance of the word. It is through the word that we're able to expose the lies of Satan. Consider Jesus and his temptation. Chad pointed these things out a number of uh, in his message a couple weeks ago. Um, we see that Satan tried to divert Jesus from his mission using three particular lies. He said, as Jesus was very hungry, he'd been fasting for 40 days, he says, turn this bread into stone. Sorry, the opposite. Turn this stone into bread. And Jesus responded, but man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy. Then Satan says, if you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus responds by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God alone, and him only you shall serve. And then Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. And Jesus responds again, quoting Scripture, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. And notice, every time Jesus combated those lies, those manipulations, those twisting of truth, 
with the word. And so when we consider truth and temptation and spiritual warfare, it's also helpful for us to recognize that this was the battle of history. The chief conflict between the chief of demons and the son of God. The future of the universe hung in the balance at this point. And Satan chose as his tactic lies. And Christ chose as his tactic the word of God. So don't take the issue of truth and lies and deception lightly. It's a very real and it's a very powerful demonic tactic. And lies regarding God have caused more destruction in the world and in history than the most barbaric armies. Which demonstrates the vital need we have to wield the sword to defend ourselves against demonic attack. This morning, or sorry, this Thursday, Thursday morning, I was going into Starbucks to um, prepare some more of this message and to spend some time with the Lord. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I saw a couple of men on their motorcycles just, just pulling in and I and kind of smiled at them and got out of the car and we struck up a conversation and they um, asked me some, some questions and I responded and we had this lengthy conversation in time. To make a long story short, they claimed to be followers of Christ and they advocated extreme forms of abstinence. But the foundation of all their beliefs, where they determined truth, was listening to their heart. They said, we, know, we, we don't believe that you should even read the Bible anymore because God speaks to us in that, those personal impressions that we have. That's how we determine what is true. Now, they quoted the Bible extensively in our conversation and misapplying it multiple times. Um, and even as part of their abstinence, they, entire, they, they depended entirely upon the giving of other people. They were nomads. They'd just driven in from um, the eastern side of the state. And again, since the, so part of their uh, needs were to depend upon other people. And so they asked me very, very humbly if, if I would buy them a bagel, and, which at that point I said, I, I can't support you. And they accepted that just fine. But I felt obligated to explain why I couldn't support him. And I said, it's because of the way you speak disparagingly about the word of God. And when I brought that point up, the conversation became a little more heated. Because to them, relying upon the word of God was uh, the chief, um, the, the chief uh, weapon that really undermined all that they taught. So that they, would, they would twist the scriptures, but when, in order to deal with it rightly, they, they, they had a hard time doing that. This was an overt attack against the truth. But many of Satan's lies are a lot more subtle. So how can we go about protecting ourselves better against both overt and covert attacks from the enemy? Um, I'm going to bring up the next slide. And this has uh, what's called the navigator's hand. And it demonstrates five ways that you can take up the word. You can hear the word, read it, Study it, memorize it, and meditate upon it. Five ways that when we do these five things, we're going to have the firmest grasp upon the word. And so there's just that illustration of a hand grasping the word. And By hearing the word, this, this includes things like listening to sermons or teachings about the word. Reading just means sitting down and reading the Bible, lengthy sections. This is often what I do in, in my time uh, with the Lord every morning. 
just to read it. It helps you get the main idea. Also, you can study it, go in depth uh, to try and come up with the right interpretation about what the author is trying to say. Examining the grammar and vocabulary, the structure of a passage, its history, its broader context. You can also memorize it, which is hiding the word in your heart. And this was central in the Old Testament and in the New Testament church because many people couldn't read it. And so they memorized it. And it's also very important today in combating lies because they're against us constantly. And so when we have the word in our heart, we're able to discern, what is this true or is it not? And then finally, meditating upon the word. The word actually means to, to chew the cud like a cow would chew again over and over and over. And to meditate is to think about a passage or a portion of scripture and to try and understand it and its applications. So there's five ways that we can try and get the word in our life. And all of these are important. But I also want to um, bring up a number of cautions, a, t- a couple cautions for Christians as we consider these five ways. All of these are important to get a firm grasp of the Bible. Uh, so understand that there is a danger in relying upon one rather than the other. For instance, we might be tempted to primarily listen to sermons in order to determine the correct interpretation of a passage instead of trying to study it on our own. If we don't do that, we don't necessarily have the confidence. How can we know if what the person's telling us is true unless we study it ourselves? And I think, secondly, we need to remember the objective. Christians are tempted to compare themselves with other Christians, or they're tempted to find value in the amount of time they spend in the Word, or how much they memorize. Um, so they might speak about the ex- uh, extensiveness of their Bible study notes or be intimidated by you know, what this person brings to community group. Man, I didn't study that much. I don't have any word studies. And this person has like five pages of notes. Or they might be worried about how, much, you know, how does my time in the Word compare with this person's time in the Word? Or how many blogs another person reads? Or how many sermons a person listens to? But again, the point isn't the amount The point of reading the Word of God and having the Word of God in our hearts is so that we might be able to defend against satanic attacks, so that we might know God as well. So consider a soldier may have the cleanest gun in a unit, but if he doesn't know how to fire the gun, what good is it? The the point isn't how good somebody looks, but how, how, how useful is what they've done to that, to winning battles. And if you find in yourself that you're winning those spiritual battles, you're able to see lies, and you're growing, and, you, and, you, and, uh, and, and your, char- your life is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, you're probably doing well. Keep it up. But if you also recognize that you're struggling spiritually, you're discouraged, you're disheartened, overwhelmed, then figure out what needs to be done to implement more success in any of these areas. So again, the Bible is how God communicates His truth to us, And it enables us to determine what is true and what is a lie. And the second part to vital wartime communication is prayer. Which brings us to the second point. Pray at all times. Verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul actually uses two words for prayer here. The general word prayer and the second word supplication. The second word supplication refers to Asking, and in its root, it actually means to have the need of something, had, have need for something. And so 
when you are making supplication, you're, you are asking for a need to be met. So at all times, we need to be asking God for help and support, both in general communication with God, just constant communication, constant prayer, but also for specific needs. But he clarifies it a little bit more. He says, pray at all times. And that word times actually means, maybe a better translation is, in every opportunity, in every need, or any, every occasion that comes across your path. And the point is, when the enemy attacks, believers are not only to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, but they're to pray. Part of their defense is praying. So by saying every opportunity, it points out that this is supposed to be this unceasing prayer. We should be in constant communication with God. So think, every time that you are tempted... You should be praying. And that's pretty constant. Consider before grumbling, before you're tempted to complain, before you're tempted to get angry or to be fearful or anxious, ask yourself the question, question am I praying? Have I prayed about this issue? And this is what I, one of the things that stood out to me this week is I just found occasion after occasion I'd be anxious or, or, or fearful or uh, upset with somebody. And, and I'd be reminded of, oh, I haven't prayed about this and convicted. So just like a special forces soldier embedded behind enemy lines will want to stay in constant communication with his commander, making requests for air support or for re- resupply whenever needed, so must our communication be with God. It needs to be constant. But recognize, too, that there's an aim in this communication. It's not just... General, It's not idle chatter. It's communication with a purpose. And a purpose that is ultimately to accomplish a mission. Which brings us to the next point. Pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Essentially it means according to the nature or according to the desires of the Holy Spirit. According to the desires of God. We need to pray in such a way that reflects a proper understanding of God. So when you pray, does your prayer reflect the reality of who God is? Does it reflect His sovereignty, His love, His compassion, His wrath, His justice, His purposes? You could contrast praying in the Spirit uh, with praying according to our flesh. Our flesh lives to exalt ourselves for pleasure in contrast to wanting to worship God. And so when, you, when, you're, when you, you feel yourself driven to request something that's really self-centered, obviously that's not how you want to pray, you should be asking yourself, what is God's will in this situation? What does God want to accomplish? What is He up to? So when we pray in the Spirit, it's really asking that question. What is God's will in this situation? And we pray according to that. Obviously, in order to know that, we need to be in the Word. So you can see how the two interrelate. The fourth point, be alert to pray, comes from the verse that says, to this end, keep alert. To this end, for this purpose. It is... For the reality that we are in a spiritual war that we need to stay alert. Christians will be attacked. And so we need to be aware 
of those attacks, both on ourselves, but also in other people's lives. The phrase, be alert, describes like a shepherd who would stay up at night and try to make sure there was no threats against his flock. It's also used to describe a Roman sentry. The importance and responsibility of being a sentry in the Roman army cannot be underestimated. The lives of all the men in the camp rested upon those who were keeping watch. And so, if one of those men got caught falling asleep, the consequences were severe. That person who fell asleep while on duty would be taken in front of the army and all of his comrades would take up clubs and club him to death. He'd be killed by his fellow soldiers because he took their lives into his hand by failing to stay awake. And Paul's point here is that in light of the grave threats and the fact that we are constantly bombarded, we need to take seriously the importance of being on guard both for ourselves, but again, also for other people, so that we might pray. So that we might pray. We need to be constantly asking ourselves, what are the possible threats in this person's life? And then pray against those things. That's how we pray for one another. The fifth point, persevere in prayer. He says, keep alert with all perseverance. And this is an interesting word. It's the only time it shows up in the New Testament. And essentially it means, as it suggests, to persist obstinately in. What becomes apparent is that prayer is not just some pious exercise that Christians are supposed to go through. It's serious work. Think about it. How many things... Do we, are we commanded to do unceasingly? And how many things are we commanded to persevere in that unceasingness? So we're supposed to do it constantly and to never give up doing it. But why are we called to perseverance in prayer? Why is it so important? What's the point? Is God waiting for just enough requests to come in and then He'll answer the prayer? Is He just... waiting to get enough people on the prayer chain and then maybe he'll intervene? What's wrong with just making one prayer, having one and then being done and moving on? Why does God want us to persevere? Especially if our prayers don't seem to be making any progress. We've been praying maybe for months and we see no result. Why persevere? In anything else in life, if it doesn't seem to be working, we move on to something else. Seems counterintuitive. Moreover, even if, if God knows everything, why pray at all if He knows our needs? What's the point of prayer? Well, the reason we pray is because prayer really isn't for God, it's for us. The reason we pray is because we are acknowledging our dependence upon God. We are acknowledging that He is infinite and we are finite. He is the Creator and we are the creature. We need to persevere in prayers because we need to be constantly dependent upon God. Consider this. When things get hard, when we get tempted, when we're under trials, our primary temptation is to give up on God. And think about this. When we pray, we are doing just the opposite. We're depending upon God. So if you stop praying, you're essentially saying, 
I am stopped depending upon God. I am going to try and solve this issue with my own methods. So persevering in prayer is essentially persevering in your trust and persevering in your dependence upon God. That's why we need to persevere. And it's on this vein I want to look at three passages that interweave three common themes regarding prayer. And this is this theme of trials and weakness and prayer. And my point in doing this is to point out the interesting relationship between these three. Because I believe that God allows trials and weaknesses just so that we can recognize our complete need to depend upon Him and to cry out to Him. First passage I want to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is there for you on the screen. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, regarding the affliction that has happened to us in the province of Asia. Paul's writing to these Corinthians explaining he's been troubled. He says that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Weakness. We despaired even of living the trial. Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And He delivered us from so great a risk of death and He will deliver us. We have set our hope on Him that He will deliver us again as you also join in helping us by prayer. So Paul is saying, God brought him to the brink of death. He didn't think he was going to live. He he and his companions thought they were done. So that they would learn to rely, not upon themselves, but on the God who raises the dead. God said, Paul knew, if God's going to accomplish his purpose, and looks like we're going to die, then he'll raise us up. God could do that. So Paul despaired of of trusting himself to trusting God. And then he says, and so I want you also to pray with us. Tying it into prayer. Look also at Mark chapter 9. This is the story of the parents who brought a, their son who had been possessed by a demon. And they said, whenever it seizes him and throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And these parents asked Christ's disciples to cast it out and they couldn't do it. Now, they had just been casting out demons. Jesus had given them power to cast out demons. And they come to this boy and they can't do it. It doesn't work. And it continues, Jesus casts out the demon. And later, the disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting, some translation says. That's the point. You need to depend upon God. You need to recognize, disciples, it's not in the power that's been infused to you. You need to recognize it. It's not about you. It's not about your power. It's about God. You need to depend upon God for this. Look also at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Therefore, so I would not become arrogant. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. This, this trial of some sort, this pain in his life. A messenger of Satan, he describes it, to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. He prays, I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But God, God's response to Paul was, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect 
in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. And therefore I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How could Paul say that he was stronger when he was weak? Because he was forced not to depend upon his own strength anymore, but to cry out to God. To, and that's what God wants. He wants us to acknowledge our dependence. And when we go through a trial, the trial is testing, are we going to continue to rely upon God, or are we going to give up on God, curse Him, and try and fix things ourselves, or turn to some other false God? That's the trial. And so Paul says, persevere. Cont- the point is, Recognize you can't get through it apart from God. God wants us to know we are totally dependent upon Him. And when we pray, we're acknowledging that. And so when it comes to trials, God wants to do many things. But consider these things from these passages. He wants us to recognize that only He can solve the problem. As Jesus said, only with prayer and fasting could this demon have been released Or God wants us to recognize we can still serve Him with the problem. That His purposes will be accomplished. As He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And God will raise the dead if necessary. God's purpose will be accomplished. God, He wants us to recognize we can trust Him. And so to keep praying. Even as this trial. So I want you, brothers and sisters, to remember it's okay to not know what to do. It's okay for things just to be out of your hands, for you to not have an answer, for you not to make sense of what's going on. It's okay. It's okay to be out of control. And I'm not advocating irresponsibility, but I am advocating the reality, accepting the reality that you are finite and only God is infinite. And you need Him. So consider, do you trust God with your kids and their futures? Do you trust God to continue to provide for your family? With your health battles? With the state of our government? With work projects? Do you trust God with the difficult people that He has allowed you to work with or to live with? trust God. And honestly, this is tough for us. Because as Americans, we are reluctant to seek help, even in prayer. But when we're burdened with trials, we need to cry out to God, but we should also ask other people to pray for us, to pray for the burdens that we're bearing, which brings us to the next point. Pray for fellow Christians. As Paul says, with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, asking for the needs of all the saints. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we face in praying for other believers is simply knowing what we should pray for. We, we recognize we need to pray, right? We, we get prayer requests, we give prayer requests, but often it's, it's hard to know what do we pray for. We, we find out a person's going through a trial. Okay, so you say, God, the simple thing would be God, release them from this trial. But maybe that's not what God wants to do. Again, the goal is trying to figure out what does God want. So 
So I think we should consider these things as we, as we think about praying for other people. Again, pray for God's will. As you know God and as you, as, as you learn to understand Him and what He values, prioritizes, and desires, pray in light of those things in those people's lives. In other words, pray in the Spirit. And second wise, uh, pray for the threats. It ties into being spiritually alert. When you, I think this is often something I miss, but when we pray for the need of another person, think about what temptations might be going on with this need. This person is going through a trial, or maybe they're getting a blessing. But what are, this, what are the temptations? How might Satan use this to try and harm this other believer? And pray against that. Pray against that. So consider, even as you pray for yourself, how do you feel tempted? And as you seek to pray for other people, ask, how do you feel tempted right now in this situation? How do you feel weak right now in what you're going through? And then you can pray for that person with those things in mind. The final point I want to address regarding prayer is pray for effectiveness in your ministry. Paul writes, And pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the essence of Paul's request here is that he would be faithful in his responsibility as an apostle. God had called Paul specifically on the Damascus road to share the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. That all people might be saved. That they might realize that forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's responsibility to go and share that. Now, again, the responsibility of evangelism has been given in a general sense to the church. We see that in Matthew 28. Go therefore unto all the nations and preach the gospel. So that as a church we need to be responsible to make sure all people hear the gospel. That we are supporting missions and evangelism. But in Paul's life, it was a very particular calling. It was his job. It was his responsibility. And so Paul is requesting boldness because it's his responsibility to make sure those other nations hear people. And right now, he's imprisoned. He's an ambassador in chains, he says. Well, it's hard to share the gospel, spread the gospel throughout the world when you're in chains. Literally what he requests is that he would have openness and speak freely about the gospel. Some translations, even the ESV says that I may have boldness. I don't think that's the best word. Because when we think of boldness, we tend to think of like a uh, confidence. But really the, what, what this word speaks to is freedom. and Having an open mouth without having any hindrance in Paul's explanation of his proclamation. I think it also... In, encompasses distractions, that Paul wouldn't have any memory lapses, that he wouldn't be afraid of any opponents, he wouldn't have any physical weaknesses that would prevent him from speaking freely the gospel. The opposite of this word uh, is censorship. So the point isn't that Paul would just be um, hard-hearted in his proclamation, or confident maybe is a better word to use, but that he'd be free without hindrance, as he says, how he's supposed to speak. 
Paul wanted to be faithful to his responsibility, and so he requests aid in his ministry, essentially asking, help me, pray that I'd be faithful to my task that God's given me. And so when it comes to applying this text in our lives, I think we need to exercise a little bit of caution. Just because a writer of Scripture writes or does something doesn't always mean that we should immediately apply it to ourselves. This request of Paul stems from his calling by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, at the same time, I think we should all beg God for opportunities and that we should ask God to help us to be open with the gospel. But few of us have been called to be specifically evangelists or missionaries the way Paul was. So I think maybe a better way to apply it, although I think it's fine to pray for boldness or openness with the gospel, but I think maybe a better way for us individually is to recognize Paul's wanting to be faithful in his ministry. And so we should also pray for faithfulness in our ministry. Peter points out, that each believer has been given various spiritual gifts. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. This would be one like Paul. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that, God, that in everything God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. So given the fact that each of us has been given differently, we've had different callings in our life, we should seek to be faithful to those callings as Christians in whatever those are. So if God has called you to be in the children's ministry, you could pray for effectiveness by saying, God, help me to be compassionate. Help me to be patient. Help me to recognize that that this is an important ministry. Or if God's called you to be an employee, that you would be faithful, diligent, that you would uh, be submissive to your employers and have integrity. If you're called to lead worship, that you'd be attuned to the needs of the body as you're singing, in your ministry, in your exhortation, that you'd have effective communication. If God's called you to be a parent, that you'd have patience, that you'd have joy, that you would have genuine interest with what your kids are dealing with and not be distracted by their things. So again, consider, as you consider your callings and the callings of other people, pray for effectiveness in that ministry, whatever it is. And if God has called you to an uh, evangelism with a coworker, with a neighbor, pray for openness, just like Paul does. In closing, I want to read to you a portion of a message that I heard 10 years ago that made, uh, made a in, deep impact on my life regarding prayer. And it ties prayer into this theme of wartime communication. So I'll just read it to you and then we'll close. This was given by John Piper at a missions conference in 1988. He writes, The number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war... You cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, 
handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, Comrades, this general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as, your, as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send an air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we're in a war. No urgency. No watching. No vigilance. No strategic planning. Just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. We simply must create in ourselves and in our people a wartime mentality. Otherwise, the biblical teaching about the urgency of prayer and the vigilance of prayer and the watching in prayer and the perseverance in prayer and the danger of abandoning prayer will make no sense and find no resonance in our hearts until we feel the desperation of a bombing raid or the thrill of a new strategic offensive for the gospel, we will not pray in the Spirit of Jesus. God, help that to be true in us. Because you know how easy it is for us to miss the purpose of why we're here. We are easily distracted. We do easily give up. And I pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us perspective, you would give us hope that we would persevere in the Word and in confidence in you and persevere in prayer and dependence upon you. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to, to grow in praying for one another. That we wouldn't just approach prayer requests like lists, but God, we would desperately, we would feel the, the temptations, we'd feel the trials that other people are going through that they would mean something to us as well, that we truly would weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would, that we would uh, recognize the reality that we're all in a battle and some of us are losing. God, that help, help the, the strong to care for the weak. And God, help us to know how we can encourage one another and pray for one another. Pray that you bring about a spirit of openness and interdependence and love, God. Because without love, we're just a, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. God, make us a loving church. Make us a praying church. Make us a church that's devoted and dedicated to your word. Lord, we ask these things in your name.